Bow with me as we pray once more. Father, we're in need of wisdom, we're in need of help that comes from your throne, and so we turn now to your word and we ask by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would open up our our minds and our hearts to receive your word. Help us to not be those who merely hear your word, but Lord, we desire to be affected and to be changed, to be transformed. Lord, we can't do that on our own. And so we turn to you. We ask for the power of your Holy Spirit to work in us this morning. Lord, I pray for any that are here this morning who do not yet know you. I pray you'd open up their eyes to see the beauty of your son Jesus, the forgiveness of sins that's found only in him, that you'd lead them to faith in Jesus. I pray you'd help me to preach faithfully and joyfully and clearly that Christ would be exalted. Lord, I thank you for the honor that it is to preach your word. Help me to say what is true and what is helpful this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. What do you need most? I wonder what's on your mind and your heart this morning. We face daily challenges. We face problems. There are pressures that we face in life, and oftentimes, those get translated into our minds as, as needs. And I, I don't mean to make light of whatever difficult situation you might be going through. Right, those are real things. Uh, some of you feel like, I need more money. You're working hard and you get to the end of the month and you pay all your bills and you wonder, where's the rest of this money going to come from? Some of you need employment. Some of you are in difficult physical Situations where the, the doctor's visits leave you with more questions than with answers. And medication isn't working the way that you maybe hoped that it would. Those desperate situations, they, they pile up. They can be big challenges. They can just be small, momentary challenges. They weigh heavy on our heart and our mind. They're, they're real burdens that we're invited to call out to Jesus for his help in. But you know what's interesting? When we look at the pages of the Bible, Jesus doesn't overlook these particular challenges or burdens in our lives. He shows compassion. He shows care. One day all will be made well. There will be no more challenge, no more sickness, no more want or need. When Christ returns or when we go to be with him, all will be well in his presence forevermore. Jesus doesn't make light of our temporary situations, but you know what? He has a way, when we look to his word and the scriptures, of pointing our eyes and our hearts to what we need most. And if you're a Christian this morning, by Christian I mean that you've repented of your sin and put your faith in Jesus Christ to be made right with God, that you've turned to Jesus to trust in him, his death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, to be forgiven of your sins, then Jesus has already met your greatest need. He's forgiven your sins. He's brought you close to God. What you need most is God. And for those who've who've come to put their faith in Jesus, that is indeed what we've already received. Now, filled with His Spirit, and forevermore when we go to be with the Lord. These desperate situations, though, they, they still matter in our life. There's a need for hope today. Imagine this. What if you couldn't walk today, paralyzed, laying in a bed, what if you had a disease that was so serious you were placed in quarantine? 
and cut off from your family and friends. They couldn't come and see you, couldn't come to church, cut off from your faith, family. Uh, How would Jesus make a difference in those situations? Well, that's the exact situation we read about in Luke chapter 5. We're going to see how Jesus dealt with people in those situations. Turn with me to Luke chapter 5. We're going to be in verses 1 through 26 this morning. If you're new to our church this morning, we're so glad you're with us. And it's easy to jump right into the sermon series. If you want to open up a copy of the Bible to Luke chapter 5, you can take that pew Bible in front of you if you want to use that. Turn to page 860, 860, page 860. And uh, the best way to stay engaged with the sermon is to open up a copy of God's Word. And if you don't own a Bible, then use that Bible this morning and take that Bible home with you. That's our gift to you. We're going to be in Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 26 this morning. It's already been read for us just a few moments ago. So let me go ahead and give you the main idea of what I want us to see in this passage. Here's the main idea. Jesus has the power and authority to call and cleanse sinners. Jesus has the power and authority to call and cleanse sinners. Last week we were in Luke chapter 4. We saw that Jesus is God's promised Messiah filled with power and authority. We took a look at the first recorded sermon of Jesus in Luke 4. He preached from Isaiah chapter 61 and pointed to himself as the long-awaited Messiah filled with the power of God from authority from God to come and to set captives free, to bring salvation. And here in Luke chapter 5, we see his power and his authority exercised in three different situations with Simon Peter, with a leper, and with a paralytic. We see this power and authority of King Jesus exercised in all three of these situations, and they all reveal the power given to Jesus as the Son of God here on earth. Well, as we make our, our way through this section, verses 1 through 26, I want to break our outline up into two different parts. And these two parts expound on the main idea I just gave you. The first part I want you to see in verses 1 through 11, the power to call and commission followers. It's the power we see demonstrated of Jesus in, in verses 1 through 11, the power to call and commission followers. Well, the beginning of Luke 5 records Jesus calling his first disciples, calling them to leave their present life and to follow him. Indeed, that's what a disciple is, someone who follows Jesus. All true Christians are disciples. By God's grace, by Jesus calling you individually to repent of your sin and trust in him, your life was transformed and changed. And the result is You are following Jesus. It's only by grace, through faith in Jesus, that you would follow him. So so we see the story here of the first disciples to follow Jesus. And Luke, in his account, he focuses on Simon Peter in particular. Simon Peter. Now, the occasion for Jesus calling his disciples happens as Jesus is preaching around the Sea of Galilee. And this region of Galilee is where Jesus focused his public ministry here on earth. It was a bustling center around a a big lake. You see there in verse 1, this body of water is called the Lake of Gennesaret. 
That's also known as the Sea of Galilee. It was a major source of livelihood as, as fish were a regular part of people's diet. We see the story focusing on Simon, whom Jesus would later name Peter. So we'll refer to him as Simon and Simon Peter this morning. Now, Galilee was one of the most densely populated areas of Israel. It's where Jesus launched his ministry to preach the gospel of the kingdom of God, and crowds would gather there to hear Jesus preach. Notice here in verse 1 that Luke refers to the message Jesus was preaching as the word of God. Jesus spoke with authority as the son of God. His word was indeed the word of God. So so Jesus didn't just talk about God, he is God, and therefore he spoke as God, his words, God's word. We see here in Luke 5 the authority of Jesus through his word to call and to commission disciples to serve him. Now the story of Simon Peter, it helps us know what it looks like to be a disciple, what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus, one who would leave everything behind to turn and follow Jesus. Now, notice there's a pattern in this story. Jesus preaches the Word of God. That's that's the majority of his ministry. It's a preaching ministry. It's verbal proclamation. He's come to proclaim and declare salvation from God. He's come to proclaim liberty, to set captives free from the power of sin and death and Satan. So there's him teaching the Word of God, but then there's a miracle that follows. And here in this particular section, a miracle of a tremendous catch of fish. And this miracle results in faith and following Jesus, or true discipleship. So first we see Jesus taught on the shore of the sea. He was teaching there, crowds gathered, but then he gets into Simon Peter's boat. And we read at the end of verse 3, he sat down and taught the people from the boat. We saw last week in chapter 4, sitting down is the posture that a rabbi would assume to teach. Jesus sat down in the boat, and he continued to preach to those that were there on the shore. The crowds mattered to Jesus, but notice he also was directing his attention to Simon Peter. As he, after he gets done teaching, he commands Simon Peter in verse 4, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon Peter, he responds in this moment, not by sight, but by faith. Here's what I mean by by sight. He says in verse 5, Master, which is another way of saying rabbi, we toiled all night and took nothing. Well, fishing typically happens at night. Right? So, so, So where do the fish go during... The day when the sun comes out, they go to deeper waters, uh, water that's so deep that the nets can't reach them. So the time to go and fish is at night. I learned how to fish from my dad and my uncle, and I remember getting up on Saturday mornings as a teenager to go fish with them on some of the lakes in this area. And they would get me up at what I thought was a really early time, and we would get out on the lake on Saturday morning. I thought it was really early as a 15-year-old, about like 7 a.m., that's not early because you know what? At 7 a.m., the real fishermen were getting off the water at 7 a.m. They had been out there since 3 a.m., and they were the ones landing the big fish because at night, those fish would come in to feed. They'd come into the more shallow water. So Simon Peter, he's been fishing all night. Uh, the daytime is when you let your nets 
dry out, and you were done for the day. And it was a disappointing night. Fished all night, hadn't caught anything. And here's Jesus saying, hey, give it one more try. Now, Jesus, to the best of our knowledge, was not a fisherman. He was a carpenter. So a seasoned fisherman might think, why is he telling me to do this? He kind of acknowledges that. He's hesitant, but recognizes him as a rabbi. And then he responds, not by sight, but by faith. Verse 5, but at your word, I will let down the nets. Which helps us know the importance of obedience to discipleship. You see, a disciple is someone who hears the word of God and obeys. I think the word obedience, it's become less and less popular around Christian circles. And far too often I hear Christians confusing obedience for legalism. Legalism is trying to make yourself righteous, and legalism particularly is adding to the Word of God and creating human traditions or human standards, human rules to try to declare yourself righteous. That's wrong. We need to steer clear of that. But obedience is looking at the Word of God and saying, this is hard. This might sound difficult. By, by sight, I don't necessarily have the initial desire here to follow through with this, but I trust the Word of God. My desire truly is to obey God. Every Christian has been given a desire placed within us by the Holy Spirit to obey the Word of God. And the new covenant God by His Spirit has written His Word on our hearts. And therefore, it's our desire to follow God and His Word. Simon Peter at that point says, because of your word, I'll let down the nets. And from this moment of faith comes fruit, or better yet, fish. So many fish that it threatens to sink the boat. I make them say, this is a miracle produced by Jesus. They hadn't caught anything. It wasn't like, again, it wasn't like Jesus was a fisherman. He's like, okay, I got the little honey hole over here, the little spot we need to go to, and you put your nets down there, you're going to find fish. However this miracle happened, Jesus caused it to happen. He's the Son of God. He produced this result, revealing He is the one on earth who has authority over the sea and all of creation. Other miracles testify to this. Jesus walking on the water, you can't walk on water. No human being can do that. It's not possible. No one's ever figured out a way to walk on water. Jesus has been revealed as the Son of God. Uh, even the wind and the waves obey Him. He has authority over all of creation. And Simon Peter's first response, he recognizes this. Look at verse 8. His first response is that he falls to his knees and he cries out, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Well, why would he respond like that first? Why not jumping up and down? Look at this catch. Presumably, as a fisherman, he was praying for a catch like this. This was his job. This is how he earned money. Like coming home with empty nets meant how are we going to be able to afford to live? What are we going to eat? Why not jumping up and down in amazement? I mean, likely that the best catch of fish he had ever seen or heard about. The boat almost sank. Well, he responds in that moment, depart from me. Because he recognizes the one who he's in the presence of. This is the Son of God. Jesus is the one who has authority over all of creation. In fact, Simon Peter is the first person in the Gospel of Luke to call Jesus Lord. First person to call him that. The Lord being a divine title. So far, that's only been used in the Gospel of Luke 
for God. When he's calling Jesus Lord, he's recognizing this is the Son of God. He's here in the boat from me. Sounds a whole lot like Isaiah, what we read in Isaiah chapter 6 this morning. Isaiah in the presence of God, woe is me for I am ruined. Sounds a lot like the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death. When you encounter a holy God, the initial response is, I am not worthy. That's his response in this moment. He sees Jesus for who he truly is, and therefore, he sees himself for who he is. Holy God, sinner. He says, I'm a sinful man. Now, keep in mind, prior to this moment, he had already heard Jesus' teaching. He heard it there again in the boat, but presumably he had heard it before. Jesus' teaching to repent and believe in him for the kingdom of God was at hand. He saw this miracle and he realized, and he'd already seen a previous miracle, right? His mother-in-law, we saw it last week, chapter 4, mother-in-law healed from her deathbed by the word of Jesus. He realized he was standing in the presence of the King, of God Almighty. He's undone at the sight of Jesus, the Son of God. Uh, he, he recognizes he's a sinful man. He, he asks Jesus in that moment, really as a, a sign of not being worthy to be in the presence of Jesus, depart from me. But Jesus does not depart from him. In fact, Jesus ju- does just the opposite. He calls him to follow him. Simon said, depart, and Jesus says, come near. Look there at verse 10. He calls Simon to follow him. At the end of verse 10, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 4, he records some different words. Chapter 4, verse 19, Matthew 4, Jesus saying, come, follow me, and I will make you what? Fishers of men. This is Jesus with the authority from God to call and to commission. That's what he's doing here. He tells Simon Peter, don't fear, follow me. And this commission is filled with a promise, with assurance, a promise of how Christ, by his grace and his power, would transform him to become a fisher of men. In other words, Jesus is going to turn Simon into something he was not. From a fisherman to a fisher of men. The power of Christian ministry is not found in the messenger, found in the message, found in the one who stands above the message, Jesus. Now, now what was Jesus doing here with this word picture, fisher of men? I don't think he's merely making a relevant illustration to try to connect with them on a level you could understand. I think it accomplished that, but I think there's something deeper that's going on here. Old Testament prophets use the metaphor of fishing for gathering people for judgment, particularly for saving them from the wrath and judgment of God against sin. God is a judge, and He is right to judge us for our sin. Places like Jeremiah chapter 16, verse 16, we, we hear this same metaphor. Behold, I am sending for many fishers, declares the Lord, and they shall catch them. If you're a fish and you get caught, that is a bad thing because that is the end of you and you end up on someone's dinner plate. But fishing for men, if you get caught in that net, well, that's a net of salvation. It's a net of rescuing you from judgment. It's it's a picture the old prophets 
The Old Testament prophets looked forward to a day when these fishermen would gather up in nets and rescue people from God's divine judgment and rather save them to live in fellowship with God. Gathering people for salvation, the greatest thing that could ever happen to you to be caught up in that net. Indeed, if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, you got caught in that net. You were lost, but by the grace of God and Jesus, you're now found. You didn't save yourself. You got rescued. You got delivered. That's your Christian testimony, not what you did, but what Christ alone has done. But notice this transformation. Not only did you get caught in this net, but he's saying, he's telling Simon here, that you're going to be a fisher of men. That's a commission to a new life, a commission to new work, a commission to a new calling. And this commission is not just for Peter. It's for all who follow Jesus. In fact, church, we need to recognize if we're not fishing, we're not following. Part of our discipleship, following Jesus, to give ourselves, to pursue through prayer and proclamation of the gospel, to pursue the salvation of those around, just like someone else did for us. Somebody was praying for you. They were. Somebody was proclaiming the truth of God's Word. I think about that often. I think about it like every baptism service. Somebody was praying for them. God just used us at the very tail end. Used someone in this room. But probably for years, there were seeds planted, prayers offered up. God is so faithful and merciful and gracious. We're called to be those who fish, though. If we're to follow Jesus, we are to fish for the souls of people. Well, church member, whose soul are you presently fishing for? Last Sunday night at the members' meeting, if you didn't come and you were able to, I hope you come to the next one. It's, they're not just business meetings. We do important work there. One of the things we did last week, we took a card and we wrote down three names. And everyone wrote down three names of somebody that they're committing to pray for their salvation and seek to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them and seek to bring them to a church service at some point in the next few months. And we turned those cards in and we said, hey, we're going to pray for these as elders. We'll pray for every single name. We'll work through those in our staff meetings and some of our elders' meetings. We'll pray for every single name. We'll partner with you in prayer and proclamation. Those are just three names of souls that each of us have committed to fish for. Who might God have for you to share the good news of Jesus with this week? Are you watching Are you waiting? Are you fishing? Now this call, this commission, it went to Simon in the moment, but we see in verse 10, it also involved James and John, sons of Zebedee, his his fishing partners there. They too are amazed. They recognize Jesus as the Son of God, and they all respond to his call and commission in verse 11. Look at verse 11. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Simon, Peter, James, and John go on to form the core of the 12, the 12 disciples, uh, the 12 apostles. As we see here the beginning of Jesus calling these 12 disciples or apostles through whom the gospel of Jesus Christ would go out, through whom churches would be planted. You can follow in Luke's second volume in the book of Acts and see the acts of these particular men. This is the beginning of Peter, James, and John here on this boat in Galilee. Let me be clear, though, what's highlighted here in verse 11 is not the obedience, the remarkable obedience of these disciples. 
It's there, and it should stand out to us, but what is highlighted is the authority of the one who called them. Christ is exalted here in this passage. Jesus has the power and the authority to call and commission followers. Again, consider a Christian testimony, like what we'll hear after the service here with two baptisms that we have. A testimony is not about how much you gave up to follow Jesus. A testimony, a Christian testimony, is not about the risky or kind of costly choice that you made to follow Jesus. A Christian testimony, rather, marvels in the one who called you, marvels in his amazing grace, marvels because you're not worthy of salvation. You owed a debt to God that you could not repay because of your sin to him. A Christian testimony marvels that Jesus, he paid it all, all to him we owe. And that's what Luke is showing here in this gospel. The one with power and authority to cleanse, to save, to commission, to call. And what's so amazing here is not that they were following Jesus. What's so amazing here is who they were following. Jesus, the Son of God. There's no one like Him. That's the highlight of this story. Now, don't skip over verse 11, that their following Jesus meant that they left everything behind. That's important, but I want to draw a connection here. So certainly it's important. That was their livelihood. That was their business. Think about this. They left behind the miracle they just received. All right? I was thinking about that this week when I was preparing. I hadn't thought about that a lot. I'm like, they just caught so many fish. You wouldn't know what to do with it. A catch they probably dreamed of and prayed for and they left it. What happened to all this? I don't know. I'm sure somebody made out well. It's kind of like an inheritance they were able to receive there on the shore. They left that miracle behind. Matthew tells us James and John left dad in the boat to follow Jesus. Again, what's being highlighted? Christ is worthy. But make this connection. Look back in verse 8. Simon's response, depart from me. I am not worthy. Verse 11 leaving everything and following Jesus, Jesus alone is worthy. I am not worthy. Christ alone is worthy. Those two postures are necessary in Christian discipleship. It's the heart of your conversion. If you have a conversion testimony, it's a place where God humbled you to recognize your sin before him. And you recognize I'm not worthy. I can't do enough to make up my, for my sin against God. I'm not worthy. But you weren't left there in shame and in hopelessness and in despair and separated from God. Rather, Christ pursued you. He opened up your eyes to see who He is. And you've realized and recognized and your life has followed Jesus, professing He is worthy. That was your conversion in a moment, but it's also part of your daily living as a Christian. How often do you think, I'm not worthy, Christian? But Christ is worthy. You know, one of the few times that I cry, I think as I get older, I cry more. Sometimes during sermons. But one of the few times I cry is during singing. And maybe you're like me in that. Singing that Jesus paid it all. And in the moment, overwhelmed by the grace of God in Christ. Overwhelmed because you don't deserve His mercy and grace. Overwhelmed by his loving kindness. Eyes fixed on him. He is worthy. I was with my daughter yesterday. We were visiting a Christian college campus, so we went to a little praise and worship service, and I was bawling like a baby next to her. I don't think she noticed too much. 
But I was just overwhelmed with them. I was like, God, you're so good. You're so good. I'm standing here with my daughter. You've been good to her. You've saved her. You've been faithful to her. The moment overwhelmed by God's grace and God's kindness. Friends, that posture, I'm not worthy, but Christ alone is worthy. That was the beginning of your Christian life, and that is to be our daily life as Christians. He is wonderful. I am not worthy. Jesus is worthy. He is altogether wonderful. He is altogether marvelous. You need to understand this here this morning. If if you're not a Christian, if you're not yet a Christian, you need to understand that people who are merely religious, they look to Jesus. I've heard it put like this. They see Jesus as useful. Useful when you're having a hard time. Useful for some good lessons, for an inspirational example. But Christians don't view Jesus merely as useful. We view Jesus as beautiful, wonderful, marvelous. The one who came down, he was sent from heaven. The one in whom there is forgiveness of sins. The one of whom we're not worthy to draw near, but in his grace and his kindness and his mercy, he has drawn near to us and loved us and saved us and forgiven our sins as far as the east is from West. If you're here this morning and you've not yet trusted in Christ, I want to ask you the question, have your sins been forgiven? How are you approaching having your sins forgiven? You can't possibly, you're not worthy of approaching God to pay Him back. Trust in Jesus. We'd love to talk with you more about what it would look like to trust in Jesus today. Well, something else we see of Jesus and His power in this section in verses 12 through 26, we see the power to cleanse and forgive sinners. The power to cleanse and forgive sinners. Two more healing miracles in this section. First, the healing and cleansing of a leper, a man with leprosy. And second, the healing of a paralytic, a man who is paralyzed and bedridden. Both of these healing miracles, they point to the power and authority that Jesus alone has to forgive sins. So the power to heal and the power to forgive sins, they are intertwined in both of these stories. In both of them, one of them makes it explicit. But the first one here, Jesus healing and cleansing the leper. Now, leprosy is is more than just a skin disease. In its worst form, it affected the flesh, the bones, somebody's blood. It involved a tremendous amount of physical suffering and pain. Your physical appearance, how you felt, it affected the whole person. But also having leprosy involved the suffering of your whole life. A leper was considered religiously and ceremonially impure, highly contagious. If you touch a leper, you will get leprosy. And therefore, a leper was cut off from their family members, from their friends. You couldn't live in your house, end of your job, couldn't gather there in the Jewish synagogue with others. A forced quarantine for the rest of your life. So a leper was in a hopeless situation, outcast, no human cure for this disease, a a dead man walking. Now what stands out here, this hopeless man sees Jesus and he immediately expresses hope. Look at verse 12. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy, And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, 
You can make me clean. Second person to call Jesus Lord in the Gospel of Luke. Sees Jesus, recognizes who he is, the Lord, falls down on his knees in hope. If you will, you can make me clean. He had no hope for medicine. He had no hope of treatment. None of the priests in Israel, none of the rabbis could offer him healing. But when he sees Jesus, he believes that Jesus can rescue him from his desperate situation. His calling out to Jesus for help was an act of faith. Faith in Jesus. You can heal me. You can cleanse me. It was an expression of hope. You can make me clean. The only one who can do it. Again, lepers were cut off from society. They weren't allowed to approach people. And if you were in Israel and a leper were to approach you, it would be unthinkable to stand there and have a conversation. Getting too close, you'd get leprosy. It'd make you unclean. It'd put yourself and your whole life in jeopardy. But notice not only does Jesus stay and talk with them, look at what's recorded first. Jesus touches this leper. Look at verse 13. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Now, Jesus could have healed him with a word. He does that in the next miracle with a paralytic. Well, why did he not just do that here? He touched him. Something that would have been unthinkable to touch a leper. It was a touch of compassion. It was a touch of reaching out, compassionately moving towards this man in a desperate and hopeless situation. He touched a man with leprosy. Now, again, if you were to touch a leper, here's what would happen. Leprosy would travel from that individual to you. You would become unclean, impure. You would now get cut off. But here, Jesus, the Son of God, touches this leper, and two things happen. One, Jesus remains clean. He remains holy and pure, which is a miracle in and of itself. But then second, the leper is immediately made clean. Consider what that would have looked like in the moment. This wasn't like he touched him and, man, over the course of like three months, he got better. His skin started to clear up. Things changed. No, immediately. It means if you're standing there, all the wounds healed immediately. Any discoloration, any blemishes gone immediately. Physically restored to look like a new person at the touch of Jesus. This healing revealed that King Jesus has the power and the authority to reverse the effects of sin. Sin spreads, it travels, it travels through Adam. Adam sinned. Through Adam came sin and death. It spread to you, it spread to me. Christ came to reverse the effects of the fall, to reverse the effects of sin. Through him, sin comes to an end. He takes that sin on, and through him, the spread of righteousness comes. Christ and Christ alone can touch the unclean and make them perfectly clean. And that's what was revealed in this healing. Jesus has the power. He alone has the power to reverse the effects of sin. Now, Jesus heals this man. He tells him to tell no one. Why? I mean, we live in an age where we tell everyone everything immediately on social media. I probably know what you're eating in just a few hours by looking at Instagram. Why did he say don't tell anyone. Well, this rise of popularity likely would become a hindrance. He came to preach. 
We'll see in the next scene that the popularity actually got in the way of some people coming to hear him. It also could be a distraction where, where some were coming just to be miracle watchers and weren't really interested in the message of Jesus Christ. He tells him to tell no one, but after healing this man, in keeping with the law of Moses, he commands this man, go to the priest. The priest could not make somebody clean, but the priest could declare somebody clean. That was in keeping with the law of Moses, and therefore that would be kind of the entryway back into society. So with that, the word, it spreads anyways. And we see in verse 16, as Jesus' popularity grew, so did his prayer life. He withdrew, and the Son of God prayed. Jesus has the power and the authority to make clean what is unclean. What that means, there is no part of you that Jesus cannot make clean. Some of you are here this morning, and maybe the obstacle to you putting your faith in Jesus is you think that you have done something so bad that you can't be forgiven of it. You think that Jesus, there's things no one in this room knows that you've done. And you think Jesus can't possibly forgive me of it. I remember the testimony at at the funeral of my cousin a year ago. He died at 53. He became a Christian in the last 10 years of his life. And his pastor gave a testimony there at the funeral. And he said he had gone on a mission trip. The pastor had gone on a mission trip to the Philippines. And he put on Facebook a picture in this bay there in the Philippines where he was there meeting with pastors who were planting churches. And my cousin saw that bay, and my cousin commented, I was stationed there in that bay in the United States Navy. And he said, my cousin put this on Facebook. And I did a lot of things there I'm not proud of, but God's forgiven me for all of it. God will forgive you for everything. He's a gracious God. He's shown us in Jesus there is no part of you. He is unable or unwilling to make clean. The question is, will you cry out to him for forgiveness? I hope you do that today. Please talk to someone who brought you. Well, the second healing here in this section, verses 17 through 26, Jesus heals a paralytic, a man who's paralyzed. And here Jesus explicitly makes the connection between his power to heal and his power and authority to forgive sins. Again, the popularity of Jesus, it grew so much There was a certain group of men who couldn't get their friend close to Jesus. The only way they could go is up on top of the house and through the roof to get into the house that Jesus was preaching in. Let's pick up in verse 18. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst of before Jesus. Friends, that is an act of faith, persistent faith, obstacles in the way, and looking to overcome that obstacles because they truly believed Jesus could heal their friend. And included it is the faith of the man there on the bed. We see later Jesus heals him because of his faith. You know, my, my grandfather was fully paralyzed. He had multiple sclerosis. My entire memory of him from a little kid, he couldn't hold me, he couldn't hug me, he couldn't move, couldn't get out of his bed. He was just there in his bed. The only thing he could move was his eyeballs, and he could smile. And that's what he did for his whole life. If you would have told my family, my dad and and his brothers and sisters, that there was someone that could heal him, I imagine they would immediately have gotten him up, and nothing would have gotten in the way. 
There's a lot of false hopes, false promises. There's a lot of people selling snake oil out there, promising that they'll somehow cure something the doctor will not or cannot. And you kind of fish through those things. But in this moment, these men evidently heard about who Jesus was, including the man who was there bedridden and paralyzed. And there was nothing that was going to get in their way. This was faith. It was persistence. Faith brings persistence and patience, pressing through persevering. And Jesus recognized this faith in these men. Their faith was evident. And and what happens next when they finally get to Jesus, lowering this man through the roof, it's a bit surprising. Look at how Jesus responds in verse 20. And when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. Rather than make the man immediately walk, Jesus forgave his sins which was his greatest need. What do you need more than your sins being forgiven? From our earlier question, the introduction, lots of pressing needs and challenges, what you truly need, in the truest sense of that word, what you and I need most is to have our sins forgiven. Jesus shows that here. In fact, if you've received through faith in Jesus, forgiveness of sins, the confidence you have in Christ. He's given me what I needed most. He cares about all the other challenges that are subject to that, that that are lower than that. And therefore, I can trust Him. I've trusted Him to forgive me my sins. I can trust Him with those other things that He doesn't seem to be answering as fast as I would like Him to. Now, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law there in the crowd, they immediately understood what Jesus is saying here. Okay, it's not controversial to say that Jesus is a man. Anyone in Charlotte would probably agree with that. You don't understand history, frankly, just if I say this clearly. You really don't understand history if you say Jesus never existed. Lots of non-Christians, lots of atheists would affirm historically a real person. But when you get to Jesus as God, well, that's when you start to divide who believes that. Only Christians believe Jesus is God. It's very clear here in this account of Scripture. That the Pharisees and teachers of the law present, they understood exactly what Jesus was saying by telling this man, your sins are forgiven. God alone can forgive sins. They understood Jesus was saying, he is God. Look at verse 21. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk. Jesus, for him to say that a man to a man, that his sins are forgiven, that's an easier thing to say. Certainly not an easier thing to do. Easier to say because there was no way for the people present to know if that internal reality really happened right then, especially the scribes and Pharisees who didn't believe in Jesus. So when Jesus perceived the hearts, of these Pharisees. He decided to make it abundantly clear that he indeed just forgave this man of his sin against God. And he gave visible proof to display that. Look at verse 24. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what had been what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. This man who was paralyzed immediately got up by the healing power 
of Jesus' word. With man, that is not possible to do. This is the Son of God. He makes the lame walk. But there's also something else that's not possible for a human being to do. is to forgive your sin against God. Your mom and your dad can't make you right with God. Pastor can't make you right with God. There's no human. Your friend, no one can make you right with God. Only Jesus has the authority to forgive your sins and to bring you into a relationship with God. He's the only way to God. He's the only way to heaven. He's the only way to be forgiven of your sins. The only way to be counted righteous. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. It's not some possible for a human to forgive your sin against God, but Jesus showed he had the power to make a paralytic walk. He did that to demonstrate he had the power and the authority on earth as the Son of God to forgive sins. These Pharisees, they saw the miracle, but they didn't respond in faith, which helps us know that seeing is not believing. They go on to reject Jesus. The rejection grows throughout the gospel of Luke. But I wonder about you. There's only two responses to Jesus. There's only two responses to hearing the gospel of Jesus. There's only two responses you can have, possibly, to hear the call to repent of your sin and put your faith in Jesus. You'll either reject that call like the Pharisees, or you'll receive that call like this paralytic, like this leper, like Simon Peter. And I wonder where you are this morning. What's your decision? Will you leave here today rejecting Jesus? Or you can leave here this morning having received Jesus, having put your faith in Jesus. You can get saved from your sin against God today. You have to wait and clean yourself up. You can immediately be healed and saved by Jesus if you would cry out to him and repent of your sin and put your faith in Jesus. For those who've put their faith in Jesus... We should find great comfort in these stories. That's the point of Luke. Orderly account. Bring us conviction in our faith. Bring us deeper comfort and joy in Jesus. Remind us that we have been forgiven of all of our sin. That our salvation is not of ourselves. We're not worthy of God's grace and His love and His kindness. God has been gracious to us in Jesus. Jesus has paid it all. And while Jesus gave visible proof of his power and authority to forgive sins by causing a paralytic to rise and walk here in this story. You know what the greatest proof of Jesus that testifies to is a power and authority to save and forgive sins? The greatest demonstration of his power and authority? Dying on the cross, rising from the dead. We remember that every Sunday morning. And we remember that now as we come to baptism. A physical picture of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I hope, Christian, you're comforted this morning, this time that you remember your baptism. Remember the day that you were baptized, the day you publicly professed what was already there internally, a faith in Jesus Christ, the reality and the joy of being forgiven of your sins against God, the reality that we don't have to walk in shame if we've been forgiven. We can walk in confidence in Jesus Christ. Let's ask him to help us in that way now. Father, we ask for your help now. We ask for care and compassion from your throne to to meet us in our present trials and tribulations in life. 
Lord, for those of us who put our faith in Christ, Lord, may we marvel at the grace that's been shown to us. And Lord, we ask you to strengthen our faith, remind us of the, the confidence that we have in Jesus Christ. And for any that are here this morning that don't know you, Lord, we pray you'd open up their eyes to see your beauty and their hearts to receive your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.